Galatians 5, uh, verses 13 to 26, and then chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things, and, th- and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the God of Israel. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. In Galatians, we are going to try and sum it all up. It's important as we leave this letter behind for a while that we try and think, what's the heart of it? What's it all about? What are we going to take away? And um, we also need to have a look at the last one and a half chapters, which we haven't looked at yet. So, um, so let's crack on. First of all, then, what, what is this letter about? What's the heart of it? On the service sheets, I put down um, a couple of statements that I think get close to summing it up. That God, first, he justifies us by grace, not works. And then secondly, that God changes us by spirit, his spirit, not by law. And I think along with four key verses that I'll pick out of the letter, I think those two statements sum up what the Apostle Paul has been teaching us. That God, um, first he justifies us by grace, not works, and then he changes us by his spirit, not law. Now, as you look at those statements... There is a positive and a negative. X is true, not Y. That's what we've seen, isn't it? That this letter is essentially an argument. On the one side, you have the Apostle Paul. And on the other side, you have these false teachers, the people that we've called the legalists or the Judaizers. And so the first key verse, if you flick back, is chapter 1, verse 6. 
I am astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. This letter was written in the face of false teaching, and Paul is he's urging his friends to come back to the true gospel. And as we try and sketch through it, the first couple of chapters, which can seem a bit complicated, there's quite a lot of historical and personal detail in there. Really what Paul is saying there is, look, I am an authoritative spokesman of Jesus. I didn't get my message from people. I got it from God by revelation from Jesus. I'm an apostle. And what I'm saying fits perfectly with what all the other apostles are saying. I'm not out of step with them. Come back, he says, to the true gospel, which is, well, that's where we need the two statements. Starting off, the true gospel is that God justifies us by grace, not works. Some of you may remember the... I had um, a couple of um, shirts, and the first one, unrighteous. That's what we're all like by nature, and it had soy sauce and brown sauce, and it didn't smell that great, I can tell you, having it on. Um, That's what we're like before God. We're filthy. We're unacceptable, inadmissible into his presence. What we need is righteousness, to be cleansed, made holy and perfect, acceptable in God's sight. How can that happen? That's justification. How can that happen? Well, the Judaizers, these folks on the other side of the argument, they were saying that it's by working hard to keep God's law that he sets us a moral pass mark of three A's, and we've got to work to pass it. I'm sorry if exams are a painful subject for some of you at the moment. But that's what the Judaizers were saying, that we have to work, and if we earn enough credit with him, then he'll accept us. Paul says that is not true. And his response is really summed up in the second key verse, if you look down at chapter 2, verse 16. 2.16, where Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by anything that we do. We don't need to keep the rules and, and work our way to God and earn his favor. Rather, we are justified freely when we put our trust in Jesus. It's when we believe, then his righteousness is credited to us. It's a a free gift. That's how we become righteous in God's sight. It's by grace, not works. That's how the Christian life starts. And that's also how it continues. That God continues to love us and accept us, still, always, never because of what we do, but because we're joined with Jesus and perfect in him. So the the third verse to to hang this letter on is 3 verse 3. Chapter 3 verse 3. It also gives us the fighting spirit of the letter. Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I think it seems like the Galatians as with many Christians, they kind of understand that at the beginning, in order to be initially accepted by God, it's, it's by grace, not works. I put my trust in Jesus, and he gives me a righteousness. But then surely after that, as I, if I want to continue in the Christian life, if I want to flourish and grow, then I need to start trying, right? Then my own effort needs to kick in. And Paul says, no. Having started with the Spirit by trusting God and receiving from him, are you so foolish as to think that now you can earn his favor, which takes us ultimately to uh, the second statement there, that God um, 
He changes us by spirit, not by law. The start of the Christian life is by grace, and, it, it, um, and so is the continuation. He changes us not by us working hard, but by his spirit, which takes us to the ultimate summary verse, the fourth and final one I want to draw your attention to, which is chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul lays all his cards on the table, and he describes what it means to be, and how it feels to be a Christian. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me by his Spirit. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Carrying on in the Christian life, exactly like at the beginning, is all about what the Lord is doing, not me. When I put my trust in Jesus, I'm joined with him, and so I share in his status. I share in his crucifixion. The old me, Paul can say, crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The old me is dead, and Christ lives in me. There's a new life. He puts his spirit in me, like the hand inside a glove. He doesn't just legislate from the outside, giving me rules to keep. He puts himself, his spirit, within me so that he would change me. Christ lives in me, says Paul. That's where the change comes from. And so, my flourishing as a Christian, my persevering as a Christian, these are not ultimately down to my effort, my achievement. It comes from the spirit of Christ within. He changes me by his spirit. It's an occupation, not by law. Not just legislation, it's occupation. Think about it like this. Um, think about the roughest area of London or some other city. I was thinking of London because I was once visiting my brother in North London and I got lost, which I'm afraid is classic me. And I ended up, I, I doubt it was quite the roughest area of London, but I did feel a bit unsafe. And um, I was quite glad when I met an older couple who looked quite friendly and they were able to tell me which way to get out of there and find a tube station. But... What could the government do about a, a, a hard area, a rough area? What could they do to improve things? Well, they could pass laws and bring in some more regulations, laws, trying to encourage the people to live a different way, to try a bit harder and behave a bit better. That's legislation. Or imagine three or four hundred of the MPs, civil servants, special advisors, they all move in with their families into that area. And they have their kids are in the schools and they're making friends. They're, their lives are getting integrated in the area. And by the force of their presence, their influence, they begin to change the character and culture of that place. That's what God does. Occupation, not just legislation. That's how God works in human lives. He doesn't just throw us some rules and say, there you go, try harder to keep them. He moves in by his spirit and begins to change us. It's very embarrassing for us, isn't it? God knows it wouldn't work if he just gave us his law and told us to try harder because we would fail like we always do. We need a rescue job, which is what he does by sending in his spirit into our lives. That's the Christian life. His power inside of us, sorting us out. 
So I think that's what this letter is saying. That God um, accepts us, he justifies us by grace, not works. And he changes us by spirit, not law. That's the heart of it. Thinking through the kind of rest of the flow, there are some really hard bits, frankly, in chapters 3 and 4, some complicated sections. But I think when we get to those, the gist is he's saying that God has always worked this way. You can imagine how the Judaizers would have been arguing from the Old Testament, saying, look, there's this time in the Old Testament when God gave his law to his people and they had to keep the law, and isn't that how it is now? And Paul's saying, no, that's not how it is now, but it's not how it was then either. You've misunderstood the law. That's a really important point as we look at this letter. God has always been a God of grace. There was never a time when his people had to earn their way to him. The Lord has always been a God of grace. That's the heart of chapters 3 and 4. That God justifies us by grace, not works. God changes us by spirit, not law. That's where this letter leaves us. It's ultimately asking What are you relying on in your life? What are you relying on spiritually? So it's a letter to assure us when we think that we're too bad for God to accept us. It's a letter to encourage us when we think that our performance isn't good enough for God. It's a letter to rebuke us when we think that our performance is really good and that little bit better than other people. It's a letter to give us hope when we don't think that we could ever change. Galatians says that God justifies us by grace, not works, and he changes us by spirit, not law. Well, there we go. That's the summary. So now, what does he, how does he land the plane? Second half of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. How does he land the plane? Are you ready? Well, from 5.13, Paul raises and then addresses what is really the obvious objection of the Judaizers. If the Christian life is all about receiving freely from God, and it's about him doing the work and us not having to earn anything, well, surely that'll lead to chaos. You can imagine somebody... Somebody finishing school gets an unconditional offer from university. Brilliant. I'm going to put my feet up. Or you might have seen it in families when a parent is, it's almost like their love is too unconditional and the child runs riot and is spoiled by the absence of proper rules. Wasn't that what Paul's God and Paul's Christians are going to end up like? Don't we need a regime of law and law-keeping or else there'll be a riot? Everyone will just do whatever they want. And I'm sure you can understand the logic of that and feel the force of it. And Paul's response, as he goes on in this final section, is absolutely brilliant. He says, Christians will do whatever they want. But because God has put his spirit inside them, joined them with Jesus, what they want is changing It's being united with Christ. It doesn't just alter our status before God. It also alters our hearts. Because he puts his spirit inside of us. And so what we want begins to change. Alongside all the old sinful natures, uh, sinful desires that are there, new ones start to come in from the spirit who is in us. 
I start wanting to put on the virtues that I read about in the Bible and I see in the life of Jesus. I start to love what God loves. I start to want a new and different life. Not because there's a law that says I have to, but because the Spirit is at work within me. So instead of having to be dragged and threatened into doing what is right, I find that as time goes by, that is more and more the way I want to live. Whether you're a Christian or not, it's a brilliant section. It explains logically why free grace doesn't lead to moral uh, riot. It explains our experience as Christians. If we feel inside of us a tug of war between the old desires and the new desires of the Spirit, And it translates for us phrases like walking by the Spirit so that we actually know what that means. Now, we haven't got a lot of time, so I've tried to break down the final chapter and a half into one simple sentence that comes in three bits. They're on the service sheet. The Spirit inside you battles with your flesh so that you bear his fruit and so keep the heart of God's law. Let's walk through the bits of that. First, if you look down at verse 16, you see how Paul begins by, he describes the the war that is now raging within the heart of every Christian. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. When uh, someone puts their trust in Jesus, as I said, it's not just that their status has changed. He puts his spirit in us, and um, it's an occupation, and the spirit starts to change us. And the illustration that I've used a few times is of the spirit moving into a kind of run-down house, and he starts to change things. He starts to change the walls and rewiring, repainting, pumping some new concrete into the sagging foundations, fixing the roof, all the rest of it. That's what the Spirit does. He moves in, he begins to uh, help and change us, making us more loving, less selfish, more patient, more kind. But here, though, what we see is that that image of the Spirit in an empty house, just redoing things, is a bit too peaceful because the house isn't actually quite empty. The old resident what Paul calls the flesh, is still hanging around. He's been formally evicted, but he's still hanging around, shouting out his old desires and causing trouble. And isn't that, if you're a Christian, isn't that what you feel? You've got these new desires from the Spirit. You want to live a new life. You want to please God. But still there in your heart, in your life, you feel the old desires still shouting out. And it makes us a funny combination. We, like he says at the end of verse 17, we don't do the things we want to do. And that goes both ways. So I, at some level, I still want to make myself look better by bending the truth. But I, I don't want to do that, so I don't do that, so I don't do what I want. Well, there are good things. I, I long to pray more, but I find that really hard, so I, I don't do the things I want to. And there's a conflict within me, the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. And that's how it feels to be a Christian. It's a miserable business sometimes, a divided experience. And it's comforting as we read verse 17 to know that. 
I wonder if you're comforted by that, that the funny business it is sometimes being a Christian with a tug of war going in inside of you, that is a sign of the spirit at work and spiritual life. That's how it's supposed to feel as the spirit fights against the flesh to bring about his change. Now, hang on a minute. We need to hang on and ask, given some things we've seen and said in Galatians already, how can the flesh still be hanging around? I thought Paul had said in, uh, in 2.20 that the old me is crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The old me's, I, thought, I thought the old me was gone. And yet here he seems to be saying that it's still hanging around this flesh. How do we make sense of this? Have a look at verse 24 of chapter 5. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our flesh has been crucified with Christ. That's what 2.20 says. But the point about crucifixion, the reason it's such a grim way to be executed, is that it's a long and lingering death. And so that's the picture that the Bible gives us. The old me, the flesh, has been nailed up. And it's, it's a dead man. But its end has not quite come. And for a little while, as it dies, it's shouting out its final wishes. And if you look down, verses 19 to 21, you see what those final wishes are. If you look at that list. It's the things that very much marked the old me. And all those impulses are still there. And Paul explains at the end in verse 21 that if those are the things that mark a person's whole life, if I can put it like that, if those are the story of your life, then what that reveals is that the flesh hasn't been crucified at all. It's alive and well and reigning, which means there has not been a true union with Christ. There's no true faith. That's what that shows, which means you can't inherit the kingdom because the flesh, that faith hasn't... Does that make sense? But where there has been union with Christ, through genuine faith in him, it doesn't mean those old, old habits and wants and desires, it doesn't mean they've gone, but they are now opposed. And there is a war within with the new desires from the Spirit. I want to emphasize that, that if you are sitting here and you, you, you know, verse 21 is a scary verse and you're feeling a bit lousy as a Christian and you look at the list from verse 19 and you think, yep, tick, tick, still prone to that. If you feel like that, but it bothers you, I want to say that's a good sign. That's a sign of the Spirit at work. Because being a Christian, it doesn't mean those old desires go away. It means they are now opposed by a new power the Spirit on the other side. And that's something that should fill us with great hope because as we move on to the next step in the logic of what Paul's saying here, with the Spirit in our lives, we will start to bear his fruit. You see that in verse uh, 22. In contrast to the works of the flesh, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, um, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. The Judaizers were all about imposing rules from the outside and then urging the Christians to work, work, work to please God. But it's not about rules from the outside. That's not how change comes. Change comes by the Spirit on the inside. And it's such a wonderful picture from Paul. Think about a fruit tree. I don't know if you, some of you have them in, in your gardens at home. You don't have to, to persuade and bully an apple tree into, into bearing apples or a pear tree into bearing pears. It just happens because of the power of the life within it because of the nature of what it is now. And so for the Christian, over time, God's Spirit will change your attitudes, your heart and character. It doesn't happen ultimately because you tried really hard and summoned up your efforts again, but it happens because of the Spirit within you. He bears fruit. That's worth saying that may happen slowly, You know, you think about the metaphor again of fruit. You can't, well, I mean, you could, but watching a fruit tree grow its fruit, you'd be there a long time. You know, there's winter, and it doesn't seem like that much is going on, but the life is still there on the inside, isn't it? And then the spring, and there's just a bud, a little bud starts to show, and then a little fruit, little, and then it grows. It's very slow. Organic growth is very slow. And maybe you feel, well, I I don't know if I'm growing or not. It's hard to tell, isn't it? But maybe something happens in your life and you think, well, actually, a couple of years ago, I'm not sure I could have reacted like that. I'm not sure I, I would have been able to cope with that. But you find that God has changed you. Or it's something that perhaps we see in one another, the way that God is changing us. Organic growth is slow, but it's certain All along Grange Road, where I walk down to the shops or whatever, you can see um, the walls, the garden walls, and the the paving slabs that are slowly but surely being thrown out of the way by the plants and trees and roots. So powerful, because those things have the power of life within them. Just like you, if you're a Christian. Jesus has put his spirit within you, and over time you will bear this fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You may not be able to feel it, but it will happen, not by your effort, but by his power within. And then chapter 6, the bit that we didn't read particularly 1 to 10, Paul, what he's doing is he's explaining how that looks. What does fruit look like in the life of a local church? He says you see it in the relationships. You see it in how people look after one another. You see it in the generosity and the selflessness and the perseverance. And as we come to the third final step in Paul's logic here, what he's saying is that as this fruit is seen in your life, not by your effort, but by the power of the Spirit, So you will be keeping the heart of God's law. Please have a look down at some of the verses, starting off in 5.13. For you were called um, to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or on to 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Against such things there is no law. Or clearest of all, if you look at chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the great irony with which the letter ends. The Judaizers, they were all about urging the Christians to keep the law. And Paul says, well, you will keep the law so long as you stop trying to keep the law in your own strength and submit instead to the power of the Spirit within you. On your own, you'll never manage. You notice that in in verse uh, 13? Even those who are circumcised because they're trying to keep the law, they don't keep the law in their own strength. They don't manage. God's standards are too high. It's too hard. But when you walk by the Spirit and God is changing you, then you'll find that you are keeping the heart of God's law, what he fundamentally demands, which is a life of love. It's a bit complicated. Please look at 6.2 again. I think that's where Paul makes it clearest. Bear one another's burdens, as in live out this fruitfulness in your life, in your life as a church, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's really important as we finish Galatians that we see that the law, law is a good thing. Often it can sound like Paul is arguing against law, like it's grace versus law, but that's not right. What he's arguing against is the misunderstanding of God's law by the Judaizers who were trying to view it as a ladder that people could climb up to earn their way to God. But that's not right. The law itself had always said, if you want to play, play that game, you'll never make it. You need God to circumcise your heart. Think of the promises of the Old Testament that one day God will put his spirit within his people and write his law upon their hearts so that they will be able to keep it and live the life of love that God demands. The law as it really is, is full of grace. But the Judaizers had twisted it. And Paul is saying, if you want to keep the law, trust God. Don't work and strive Trust God. And so Paul's point here, after all he said in this letter, is the final hammer blow. It's it's very ironic that the, the more you try to climb the ladder of law up to God, the further away from him you will get. But as soon as you stop that and you walk by the Spirit, his power within you changing you, then you will live the kind of law that God's law, sorry, you will start to live the kind of life that God's law was ultimately demanding, a life of love when you walk by the Spirit. Which is where this, this letter leaves us and where we need to finish now. If God justifies us by grace, not works, and if he changes us by spirit, not law, what are we to do? What are we to do? How does all this theology transfer into actual real life? Well, Paul says that what we are to do, where this letter leaves us, is we are to walk by the Spirit. Verse 16. Or verse 25, we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Think of that image of a house where you have the Spirit and the flesh and they're struggling against each other. Paul is saying to you, if you're a Christian, Take the Spirit's side. 
Always go his way so far as you can and don't give the flesh a hearing. Look to him, rely on him and fight in his strength against the flesh. Our little Lizzie is very weak because she's only little and she has some little, um, like you press a button or you twist something and an animal pops up. Or she was playing with the car keys where you press the button and the metal bit goes. And, but she's too weak. She knows what she needs to do. She knows she needs to press the button to make, make it happen. And so I put my big hand over her little hand and she presses the button and I supply the force. And that's what Paul's saying is the Christian life. Are you looking to your own strength and effort as you seek to serve, as you seek to live a holy life? Or are you trusting in the power of the Spirit? It all comes down to what we trust, which is seen most clearly in how or whether we pray. Whether we pray each day that God's Spirit would work to change us. Whether when we feel the pull of temptation, we pray for his help. When we assess our lives, we pray for him to bear his fruit. Walking by the Spirit doesn't mean we're passive. doesn't mean we float along and don't do anything, leaving him to do it all. We fight. We strive. We work. But always knowing that it's him that supplies the power. And so we thank him when there are victories, and we look, look to him when there are defeats. We trust the help that Jesus gives at the start of the Christian life and every other day thereafter. It's very fitting that we're finishing this series in Galatians with communion, this meal that reminds us that the Christian life is all about what we receive from Jesus, not the things we do for him. God justifies us by grace, not works, and he changes us by spirit, not law. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this letter, for all its riches, for all the things we have seen, all the things we still have left in the future to see. We pray that you would stamp its central message on our hearts, that we would trust not at all in our own efforts, but wholly rest on what Jesus has done for us and is doing in us. Lord, we long that as people and as a church, we would see this wonderful fruit of the Spirit. And so we say to you this evening that we rely on you. Please help us to battle for it in your strength and not our own. For Jesus' sake, amen.